Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys doing good today? You're looking good. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm just grateful to be here with you this morning. A couple days ago, I was reading books with my seven-year-old twins, and one of them pulled out the book Good Night Moon, and as soon as I saw it, I immediately flashed back to a time when our oldest son, Jimmy, was three years old, and Jenny and I left the house and left Jimmy with my brother to babysit him and put him down for a nap in his room, which featured a crib, a bunch of toys, a bookcase, and a fish tank with two fish inside of it that he had named Fish and Fred. And we got back to the house, he was still sleeping, so we thought everything went well until we peeked in the room, and the toys and books were everywhere, and Fish was missing. All we could see was Fred swimming around and a three-year-old sleeping in his crib who clearly had not been asleep for as long as Uncle James thought he had. And we're like, well, we'll just clean it up later. And as Jenny was about to close the door, we saw fish laying there, dry as a bone, sprawled out right on top of Goodnight Moon. So Jenny grabbed the book and kind of snuck out and closed the door. And she's like, oh, I feel so bad for poor fish. And I said, poor fish? Fish is dead. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't fun, but I bet it didn't take long. His suffering is over. I feel bad for Fred, who's in there just dealing with the trauma. (laughs) Like, imagine you're just chilling at your house one day, and a five-tentacled thing reaches in and snatches your best friend, and they both disappear. That would change your life. And Fred had to deal with that, and he didn't have anyone to process it with. Just had to live with the image, wondering when it was coming back for him. And that's a lot, I think. I feel like he's the one that got the raw end of that deal because it's hard. It's hard to live without answers to all of our questions about life. And I bet Fred eventually went crazy and just decided it was all a dream. He never even had a friend. But anyways, I think it's hard to live without answers, not just for fish who watch their buddies get murdered, but for us as well. In every single area of life, especially faith. If you guys are anything like me, you have something inside of you that just wants to know all there is to know about who God is and how God moves and why the world is the way the world is. And there's this desire in you that says, God, if you could just do one incredible thing, like if I could see one miracle, one when pigs fly moment with my own eyes, then maybe I would know more and I'd believe bigger and it'd be easier for me to go all in and invite other people in as well. Can I just see that? I was thinking about it this week and I wonder if God is present in that exact way for us, we're just missing it. If maybe the evidence of his greatness is all around us and we are simply not looking. We're like, God, could you just do one outrageous cool thing? And God's like, okay, what are you thinking? What do you want me to do? What if I created a ginormous rock, like so big you could live on it, and then I fine-tuned all the details so it was perfectly capable of sustaining life for billions of people with that? Oh, I did that already. Um, Maybe I could invent a 576 megapixel camera and stick two of them straight into your skull. So not only can you see everything vividly, but you can perceive depth and know how far away from you things are. And we're like, no, God, something cool. 
He's like, oh my goodness, all right. What about a thousand gigahertz computer with 250 million megs of RAM that can allow you to calculate instantaneously and pass down knowledge from generation to generation. And I could make it so cool that while that dumb bald guy is talking, before he even finishes this sentence, a million cells in your body will die and be replaced by new ones without you even thinking about it or doing anything because this computer I call your brain is even bigger and smarter than your mind. What about, and we're like, no, not that. Ah, I just want to see something spectacular. It feels kind of stupid when we zoom out and look at it from that perspective. But the deal is, we're not the first people in the history of the world to feel like that. To have this sense inside of us that if we could just see a miracle, we could believe differently. All of Jesus' disciples felt the same way, and that's why they wrote down the stories. John tells us very explicitly that he wrote down his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus because he got to see some stuff and hear some stuff from a front row seat that allowed him to know that he knows that he knows who Jesus is and he wants us to believe the same thing. He says, I want you to hear what I heard and see what I saw so that you know what I know, that Jesus is God in the flesh come for us and that in knowing that and believing it, you will have life in his name. This morning we're in week five of the series called When Pigs Fly where we've been looking at some of these incredible, miraculous When Pigs Fly moments John writes about Jesus performing. And today's the fifth one. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of John chapter nine. It's about three quarters of the way through the book, sandwiched right between Luke and Acts, which is a stupid place for John to be because Luke and Acts is like one letter written by Luke to Theophilus. And I don't know why we put John in the middle, but that's a diatribe for a different day. John is there. And in John 9, he's hanging out in Jerusalem, which is usually a recipe for conflict because the religious and political authorities there really didn't like anybody upsetting the whole system that kept them powerful and wealthy. And Jesus tended to stir things up. So this is what goes down in John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Feels like a weird question, doesn't it? But it feels like a weird question to us only because we exist in a world, whether it knows it or acknowledges it or not, that has been profoundly influenced by the teachings of Jesus Christ. See, for Jews in the first century and pretty much everyone else, there was a direct connection between suffering and sin. They felt like every instance of suffering had to equate to some instance of sin, which pretty much let them and let everybody off the hook for showing any sort of compassion to those who were hurting or in need. After all, it was was their own fault or their parents' fault, right? And it's fascinating because the disciples ask Jesus this binary question. He's suffering. Whose sin was it? Was it his or his parents? And that question, those two options, actually reveal these two false understandings of suffering that shaped culture 2,000 years ago and continue to shape culture today. I call them the, the anger angle and the shame spiral. Right, and the anger angle says, if I'm suffering, it's somebody's fault. I just got to find the right scapegoat. I have the right to be mad that this is happening to me. And I'm going to be mad at someone, probably my parents, stupid parents. I hate parents. It's his parents' fault. Was it his parents' sin? Or if it's not their fault, it's God's fault. Because how in the world could he allow this to be happening to me when people who are definitely worse than me are doing just 
fine. And no matter how we get there, the anger angle leads us to a point where we stamp the word victim across our foreheads and we wear it around and we live our lives feeling angry at somebody else. Blaming some group of people or some set of enemies for everything that's going wrong in our lives because we are suffering and they are bad. And then you got the shame spiral. Like, was, was this man born blind because of his own sin? Like something he did in the womb? I've never fully understood how that could be a thing. Like he kicked his mom's stomach too hard in there. Like, oh, he's a bad one. Blind. Like whatever. But they, they really asked this stuff. And in the shame spiral, we don't look for someone on the outside to blame. We look in the mirror. And we say, my life isn't the way that I want it to be because I am awful. I'm the worst and I hate myself. And all of my problems are my own fault. And my life would be better if I just wasn't so terrible. So you got the anger angle and the shame spiral. And each of them are correct in certain places. Sometimes we suffer as a consequence of our own stupid actions. I promise you that's true. I know from personal experience. And sometimes we suffer because of what somebody else did. It's not our fault, but it happened to us because they're all messed up. But the thing is, not every bit of suffering on this planet connects to one of those two options. And I want us to see this because I think it's dangerous if we don't recognize it. So many people in our world respond to pain and suffering in one of those two ways because those are the two natural human ways we respond when things don't go our way. But what we do is take our response and almost codify it into a worldview. And then we decide either We are all oppressed, and it's our oppression and our anger at someone for it that makes us fully human. All of human interaction is an oppressed, oppressor relationship. We are victims, and we are mad. Or we decide every single person on this planet needs to just take their destiny by the horns. You can be as happy as you want to be. You can be as successful as you want to be. You can be as rich as you want to be if you will just try hard enough. And whatever gap exists between the life you want and the life you have is there because of your own lack of effort. You just got to work for it. And any suffering you're experiencing is because you're not trying hard enough or you're not believing fully enough in God. And again, each one of these things, the anger angle and the shame spiral are accurate in certain places, but as an organizing worldview that explains the entirety of human existence, they're not only inaccurate, they're poisonous. And Jesus has a thought. This question gets asked to him. Whose sin was it? Was it this man's sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? Should he be ashamed or should he be angry? And in verse three, Jesus says, neither, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. This is so powerful. It's such a paradigm shift. Jesus says the anger angle and the shame spiral are are both false views of suffering. And he teaches here, And in other places, that sometimes our pain and suffering can point us 
to something else that's bigger than the moment we're in. There are a couple of things I want us to see in the story today. And the first one is this, my pain has a purpose. Jesus says pain can have a purpose. Pain and suffering certainly had a purpose in his life and in the life of this blind man as well. And the same thing is true for you and me. What Jesus is getting at when he says this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in this man's life is the idea that sometimes God chooses to display his greatness and demonstrate his love on the platform of our pain, on the stage of our suffering. And let me be explicitly clear, that doesn't make it any less painful It doesn't make bad things good and it also doesn't mean God causes every bad thing in our life or God celebrates when we suffer, not at all. What it means is that God is working because he never wastes a hurt. But it's only fair to acknowledge this idea that God is working, that sometimes our preparation and our purpose come wrapped in pain. That doesn't actually make the experience of suffering any better in the moment of suffering. But it does allow us to zoom out and gain a bigger perspective and begin asking the question like, what if... The broken pieces of my story are meant to point the world around me toward the one who takes broken pieces and puts them back together into a beautiful mosaic. What if my worst moments are just the prelude to God's best miracles? That's certainly what's about to happen in the life of this man born blind. He's about to get a story that not only changes his life, but changes the life of everyone who crashes into him from this day forward because he can point them toward who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. Check it out. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. It's so weird. Let's just admit, that's a weird thing for Jesus to do. And everyone looking at him was like, ah, come on, man. You don't spit this close to the temple. But I want us to understand just how dramatic it was. And so actually, I have some dirt with me, and I need a volunteer to hop up on stage this morning. I'm just kidding. Donald, you don't have to do that. That's gross. But I do want more details about this story. Like, did Jesus have to have Peter and John hold him down to get the mud on there? Probably not. He couldn't see it coming. I guess, like, just whatever. Anyways, Jesus, like, smacks the dude with his, with his spit mud, and then he tells him something. He says something to him that we've actually heard him say before, something to him that he's been saying to people, to you and me and everyone who followed after this for thousands of years. He looks at this guy and says, go. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Because this is so cool. It's foreshadowing John's whole big idea. Jesus told this guy to go, and he began to walk by faith and not by what? Sight. Literally, right? This guy still couldn't see, but he began to walk toward the destination Jesus told him to walk toward because he believed in the testimony of the people who could see. He took a step of obedience because he trusted in the word of the eye witnesses. And it's awesome. If we fast forward in John's gospel toward the very end, he said, blessed are those who have seen and believe, but even more blessed, double blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's us. 
That's you and me. And that's this blind dude. He didn't see, but he believed and he obeyed Jesus' instructions. And when he came up out of the pool, he could see for the first time in his life. I can't even imagine what that would be like. It's incredible. It's this wind pigs fly moment. And after he could see, he went home because where else are you going to go? And it's kind of funny. He goes home and all of his neighbors, all the people who watched him like begging on the side of the road every day because he was blind. There was no job for him in that society. They're looking at him like, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Is that blind Larry? I don't know if his name was Larry, but he feels like a Larry. That's what I'm going to call him today. Get over it. So they're like, is that blind Larry over there? Because he can see, ah, that can't be him. It's got to be a doppelganger situation. And he's like, no, it's me. You guys, it's me, blind Larry. Not anymore. Now I'm just Larry. I, got, I may look different with clear eyes and without my stick, but it's me. And then they look at him and like, all right, Larry, if that's you, then how did you receive your sight? Every time I read that verse, all I can picture is Elf when he's in Gimbal's and he sees the department store Santa. And he's like, if you're Santa, then what song did I sing to you on your birthday last year? Like, this is a total gotcha question because they don't have a frame of reference. They don't have a category in this world for how a blind dude could see. And they're like, we're going to get him on this one. And Larry's like, ah, well, Jesus, he, uh, the guy they called Jesus, he took some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. And I washed and now I can see. And everybody looks at him like, yeah, well, where is he then? And Larry's like, I don't know. I, uh, I didn't see which way he went. What a dumb question. <laughs> like, <laughs> why would you ask me that? Anyways, they ask him this stupid question, and then they do what you did back in the day if someone who had any sort of infirmity got healed. They take him to the religious leaders. They brought him to the Pharisees, this man who had been blind. Now, on the day, or now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Bum, bum, bum. This is a point in the movie where the music would change and it'd get real ominous because the Pharisees had made up this rule. It wasn't God's rule. You're not going to find it in the Bible, but they made up this rule. You couldn't mix anything on the Sabbath because that was work and that was disrespectful. So if you needed some lotion, you can put on oil because that's natural. But if it's mixed, no. And apparently for the Pharisees, spit and mud, that counts. Jesus is a sinner. So let me read, like, therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. It's like he put a mud on my eyes. I like it that he still doesn't know where Jesus got the mud. It's probably better. He's like, I think Jesus found some mud on the road and he put it on my eyes. Now I can see. And the Pharisees are like, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others ask, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. This is such a powerful moment. These guys who are at the epicenter of religious life in Israel decide that this beautiful moment must not be from God because Jesus is a sinner who broke the Sabbath. And he's totally not. He didn't violate any of God's laws about the Sabbath. He just didn't keep the Sabbath the way they thought the Sabbath ought to be kept. They'd created all these hoops to jump through and all these religious boxes to check so that they could be self righteous. They could earn their own way to God, and Jesus violated their self-righteousness, but not God's law. I think it's easy because thousands of years separate us to look at the Pharisees in this story and judge them really harshly and say, what a stupid thing to decide Jesus must be evil because he spit on dirt on the Sabbath. But let's be real about what happened. 
Jesus didn't fit inside their God box. They had a really clear idea of who God was and what God wanted, and Jesus didn't behave inside that clear idea. Now, their clear idea was clearly wrong, but before we get all high and mighty about it, we need to admit something. Every single one of us in this room, no matter who we are or where we've been, every single one of us in this room, whether we'd say we believe in God or not, has a God box. We have this picture that we created in our mind of who God is and what God's about. And whenever God doesn't behave in the way we think he ought to behave, whenever God doesn't say what we think God ought to say, whenever God isn't doing what we think God ought to be doing, we tend to do the exact same thing the Pharisees do. We say, well, if he's not fitting in the box I created, he must not be God. Like, how dare God not live according to the parameters I set up in my own mind about what God should be and what God should do. And in the life of the Pharisees, it's, it's tragic. But we do this. I do this. This is like living in society in the 21st century in America. We expect God to live into the boxes we've created for him. And that's the Pharisees. And they, they turn again to the blind man. Like, well, what do you have to say about him? It's your eyes he opened. And the man said, he's a prophet. And they still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, his parents answered, and we know he's born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned this man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man's a sinner. And it's clear, there's no room in their God box. They don't have a category for what they're seeing. He doesn't fit the way Jesus behaves, like the, the preconceived theological constraints that they have applied to God. They've already decided if anybody thinks this Jesus guy could possibly be the Messiah, we're kicking him out of the temple because we don't think anybody ought to think that. And this guy's like, well, why? Why? And they keep asking him his story. And they keep asking him his story. And it's fascinating to me because I think in this interaction, what we discover is that it's the Pharisees who were blind. Like Larry couldn't see, but he saw very clearly who Jesus was. They could see, but they couldn't see what was right in front of their faces. And theirs was a willful ignorance. There was something to see, but they refused to look. There was something to be discovered, but they didn't want to discover it because it didn't fit inside their box and it made them uncomfortable. And Larry looks at me and replies, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Like one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. I think this is one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. And Larry gets something here that I desperately want all of us to get this morning. I don't need to understand everything to believe something. Like Larry didn't. I don't. You don't. And maybe this is where you get hung up on faith. Maybe this is the thing that's 
caused you to keep God at an arm's length, that's kept you from going all in on this whole Jesus movement thing because you want to understand everything before you're willing to believe anything. And I'll let you know if that's you sitting in here this morning, if that's you watching online this morning, I'm in that exact same boat. I love knowing stuff and I want to know it all before I bet my life on it. But I'll tell you this, if that's you, we're also in another boat together. We have this in common. We don't apply that standard to any other area of our lives. For example, do you believe that love is real? Anybody? Me too. What is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Sorry. But like, I can't explain it. Anybody in here believe in gravity or time? Yeah, I do too. Anybody want to come up and share some thoughts about, you know, the theory of general relativity and how the constant pull of gravity causes the acceleration of time? Nobody? Me either. Or what about like, we'll boil it way down, information. I think information's a thing, but I don't know that I could explain what information is and isn't. And it's not just the ethereal stuff either. Most of what we know, we don't actually know. We just trust in the collective knowledge of our society and our community. Like somebody knows it. I bet my life every winter and my kids' lives that my heat is going to work. And we're not going to freeze to death when it's below zero, but I could not explain to you all of the inner workings of an HVAC system. I couldn't build a cell phone, but I use one every day. I go to Hy-Vee, and I've never once walked through there worried that the roof is going to collapse and kill me, even though I don't have a degree in structural engineering. I don't know. I just know that there are people who need to know, and they know. They know. If I needed to know everything before I could believe something... It would be absolutely crippling. But I don't. In life or in faith, none of us do. We don't have to understand everything to believe something. And Blind Larry is an incredible example. He says, look, I don't know everything there is to know about Jesus. I'm uneducated. I'm a blind beggar my whole life. I couldn't give a lecture on the Trinitarian doctrine of perichoresis. I couldn't explain to you the hypostatic union. How is Jesus fully God and fully man? I don't know. All I know is I didn't used to be able to see anything, and I am seeing now, so I believe and the Pharisees just cannot handle it. And they ask him again, how did it happen? And they ask him again, how did it happen? And they ask him again, how did it happen? And he keeps telling them, and eventually they get so mad, they yell at him and they kick him out of the temple because he got fed up with them. And he looked at me and said, listen, you can't even see what is right in front of you. This just isn't fitting inside your God box. But I got news for you. It didn't really fit inside my God box either. I didn't have a category for what just happened, but it happened. It happened. I love it. Because I think Larry understood another thing I want us to understand. My God is bigger than my boxes. Like way, way, way bigger. And any place where I think I've got God in a box and I've got God figured out, I've probably got it wrong. I think one of the most tragic things in the world is when we begin to act like the Pharisees. When we begin to demand that God fit inside whatever picture we have in our minds of what he should do 
and who he should be, and we limit him. Because when that happens, we begin to miss the God that's right in front of us. We close our eyes to what he's doing in the world. I think Christians do this all the time. It's what leads us to these little factions and tribes and denominations where we look out at the other people who don't look like our box looks and talk like our box thinks, and we're like, they're probably not even Christians. Or we look at jacked up people and we're like, there's no way God could extend them the same kind of grace he extended me. They are too far gone. They're too messed up. That is not a category of people that could come into this church. And non-Christians do the exact same thing. I know some of you are sitting in here today because someone dragged you here and promised they'd buy you lunch after. I know some of you are watching because somebody made you and you refuse to believe or you're not sure whether you want to believe or you used to believe and then you quit believing. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you really still looking? Are you still trying to discover what's out there to discover or have you stopped because you understand if God is bigger than the box you want to keep him in, that's going to get real uncomfortable for you. If Jesus is who he says that he is, then you're going to have to adjust to him rather than expecting him to adjust to you. Are your eyes open to who God might be and what God might be doing in the world or have you shut them tightly because you don't want to see, you don't want to know you don't want to have to believe something before you understand everything. I think so many of us are in that spot, or have been. So many of us think through that pattern and that lens every single day of our lives, but God is bigger than our boxes. And if we'll believe that and take a step of faith toward him, just one step of obedience, then he will do for us the same thing that he did for this blind dude in John chapter 9. He'll give us a story that not only changes our lives, but brings beauty to the world around us. Look, everyone around Blind Larry could throw a fit about who Jesus was and how any of this happened and whether it happened the way that they thought it should have happened, but no one could deny that he was blind and now he was seeing. Something happened in his life was the evidence And you guys, Jesus wants to do the same thing for you. There's a purpose in your pain. Jesus wants to take the broken places in your life and give you a story that you can tell to everyone whose life you crash into that changes their lives too. And listen, there's still gonna be some gaps. I mean, like, look, I, I don't know everything there is to know. All I know is that I am not who I once was. I still don't understand why I had to walk through that brokenness, why I had to live through that season that I did not like and did not want to be living through. But I know that I wouldn't go back to who I was before that because I've been changed. I have been liberated and set free. I find a love and forgiveness that I cannot even explain and it's beautiful. And people look at you and they'll say, well, how? How did it happen? Because just like the Pharisees, they're looking for more reasons not to believe. And the answer for you and me to the question how it happened is Jesus showed uh, showed up one day and spit on some mud and stuck it on me. No, it's look, I don't know how, but I know who and I know what. I know who and I know what. And as we begin to share the who and the what, as we begin to tell the world the story of what Jesus has done in our lives, it will write a better story for the world. It's the third thing I want to see this morning. Your testimony is transformational. Your story is significant. It has the power to point people toward the God who turned your broken pieces into a beautiful work of art so they can invite him and allow him in to do the same thing in their lives. You guys, when it comes to our brokenness and our blindness, Jesus doesn't just give us the remedy. He gives us the responsibility of going and telling the people around us. 
That's what he did for this blind dude. I love it. This is why John foreshadows and makes sure his Greek readers understand what this pool was named. It's Siloam. It means sent. Jesus took this dude, he healed him up, and he sent him out because he invites everybody he sealed up to be on mission with him in the world. And I think that's so cool that we get to be a part of what he's doing, a part of the way he's still healing up brokenness and still helping blind people see in the world today. What Jesus did was he took this blind dude's tragedy and he made it into his testimony and then he used that testimony to draw people toward his love and he wants to do the exact same thing in your life and mine. He wants to take your tragedy and turn it into your testimony because your testimony is transformational. It's the most powerful tool in your toolbox for walking out into a world that is struggling to breathe and helping it find the oxygen of God's love that it's desperate for. I know some of you don't think you have a very powerful story. I know some of you don't think you have a testimony that could affect that kind of change in the people around you, but I promise you this morning, if Jesus is a part of your testimony, then you have a powerful story, one that involves being brought from death to life. And your testimony is not only powerful, but your testimony absolutely can and absolutely will create a better future for every person living on this planet. This is how I know that's true. After John wrote down his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, he got exiled to an island because they kept trying to kill him and he just wouldn't die. And he had this vision and he wrote it down in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, at one point, John gets this picture of a great battle that's going on. This cosmic battle for the future of the world and the souls of the human race. And he said he saw God's people defeat the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Look, we're going to win. We're going to win. It's the third quarter. We look out at a world that's hurting and messed up and broken. We look at lives that are imperfect, that aren't always the way we want them to be. It's, it's the third quarter. Who cares what the score is? We're going to win. And John says we're going to win. We're going to beat back the darkness, and we're going to defeat the forces of evil in this world through two things, the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus Christ accomplished when he died on the cross and rose again, and the word of our testimony, the stories we share about the difference that made in our lives. You guys, that is the weapon God's given us to fight the fight that's out ahead of us. Your testimony is transformational. Your pain has a purpose. You don't got to believe or you don't got to understand everything to believe something because God is giving you a story that has the power to change the world. And if you'll share that story, the world will change. And I think of it as like for, for you and me, like, that story is more powerful when we realize how broken we really were. And so my challenge to you this morning is just to be honest about who you really are and how miraculous it is that Jesus saved you. Believe that. Because if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm pretty self-righteous. I can pretty much do it myself. I can check all those boxes. I can be good enough to get to God. Then it's going to lead you to the same place the Pharisees ended up. You will miss the beauty of the God who's right in front of your face and you won't have a story worth sharing. But the more blind you realize you were, the more brightly you'll realize you now see, and the more light you'll have to share with a world living in darkness that's desperate for the light we have. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our brokenness. Thank you for not wasting the hurts in our lives, but for allowing us 
to walk from these broken spaces toward beautiful ones. Thank you for giving us a testimony that's worth sharing with the world around us. Thank you for giving us a story of your glory, of your grace, of your love, of your forgiveness, a story that can actually beat back the darkness around us and defeat the evil in the world around us. Lord, I pray that all of us would see this morning, that we would see clearly who you are and how you saved us so that we could be filled up with the kind of hope and light our world desperately needs us to pour out all over it. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.